met you yet, and um, I've been preaching through Isaiah 40 through 66. Uh, our text today is going to go from Isaiah 41 verses 21 through 42 verse 9. I'll just say these chapters of Isaiah kind of all flow along together, and it's sometimes hard to know where to put the division. Um, people who work on the bulletin will know that I even changed my mind um, halfway through the week, so if it seems like we're going over the normal chapter divisions, that's why. Let's pay close attention to the reading of God's Word. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the King of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he that chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know? And beforehand that we might say, he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not go, grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I'll take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is the inspired holy word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open this word to us as I preach this morning, that you would prevent me from saying anything untrue and hinder anything I do say that's untrue, and that you would prosper 
any of my words that communicate what is in your word. Show us Christ this morning through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Children, have you ever grown a plant? Maybe you've had a school project or something. When I was a child, I had a project like that. I grew a little pot of cress, watercress. I don't know, in England it's a big thing. I don't know if you're into watercress over here, if you've even heard of it, but I loved watercress. My mother told me, once your watercress is all done growing, you can have an uh, egg salad and watercress sandwich, which is the best kind of sandwich there is, so I was pretty excited. The only problem was, every day I would walk down the hallway and I would see my watercress growing, and I couldn't help myself, but I would pick a little bit of the watercress and eat it. Because watercress is really delicious, in case you don't know. And I would do this every day. And by the time when I would have gotten my watercress and egg salad sandwich, it was all gone. I'd eaten it all. And so I never got my sandwich. Well, what's the point of that? Well, I suppose there's a couple things we could learn from that story. Um, but the point I'm, I'm choosing to bring out today is that I was a bad gardener. Because I kept destroying my plants, rather than letting them grow to completion. But today we're going to see that this servant that God chooses is a good gardener who does not destroy his plants. We're going to come at this passage a little bit from the outside in. Sometimes uh, Bible passages are like that. They have the main point in the center. So we're going to kind of look at the beginning and the end in point one where God proves his reality over against the other gods by announcing the future. So God announces the future. Then Point two, God announces his support for his servants. Again, kind of the beginning and the end of that intersection. And then finally, point three, who is this servant? What is his mission? The, the, the middle part of the passage. So point one, God proves his reality over against the other gods by announcing the future. You see, in verse 21, God gives a summons. I mentioned in an earlier sermon that this whole section of Isaiah it has kind of a courtroom feel of God the king calling people before him to give an account for themselves. And, and here it is again, verse 21. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the God, king of Jacob. So God's the king here, but who is being summoned? Well, we have to kind of wait for verse 23. But there we find out that it's these so-called gods, these false gods that the people are worshiping. They're the ones who are being summoned before God. And God is about to make a big announcement himself in a few verses. But before he gets there, he first challenges the other gods to see if they can announce what's going to happen in the future. He gives them a chance to take the floor in the heavenly courtroom to show off their own knowledge and power if they are able to. God himself has a proven track record, you see. Look at verse 25. I stirred up one from the north and he has come. From the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that, he might, that we might know, and beforehand that we might say he is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. So I take it that this reference to one stirred up from the north is a reference to King Cyrus. 
This great king that God predicted would rise up. And, and you'll notice ESV says, he shall call upon my name, which makes Cyrus sound like he got true religion on top of just being used by God. Um, but uh, the great Isaiah scroll from the Dead Sea Scrolls has a slightly different reading, which I think is better. He shall be called by his name. Um, and I take that to be a reference to the fact that God actually names Cyrus. We'll see a few chapters later. And so rather than saying that uh, Cyrus worships God, instead he's saying, I gave you the name of this guy ahead of time, and look, here he is. It's a, a, an indicator of how stunning God's predictive accuracy is. But either way, the main point is clearly that God has predicted Cyrus's violent rise. This king is going to tread down the nations like a potter in a clay pit, treading out his clay. The other gods, though, they didn't predict Cyrus. I take it that when the passage is talking about the former things that God predicted, it's at least including Cyrus in that. In verse 22, God challenges them to explain the outcome of these former things. So Cyrus is here, but can you tell us where this whole business is going? What's going to happen with Cyrus? Um, and then what's going to happen after that? What are the later things that are going to happen afterwards? Can the gods tell us anything? Can they do something really good or really bad? Anything that could prove that they deserve the name God? Well, verse 28 says that they can't even answer God's questions. And as verse 24 and 29 say, these so-called God, so gods are in fact nothing. There's the title, topic of my dissertation there again. These gods are nothing. And that might mean they don't exist, um, but I think it's also possible that it's saying um, that these gods are nothing compared to the Lord. After all, there are many Bible passages that do take false gods seriously as demonic figures um, who are worshipped and who hold the world in bondage. So it might not be so much that these false gods just simply don't exist, but that compared to God's power, they are nothing and empty. Compared to the I am, they are insubstantial and powerless. And though their metal images seem solid and lasting, they are in fact as empty and insubstantial as the wind. In other words, these gods deserve to have their god cards revoked. They're not really gods worthy of the name. So what's the moral for us? Verse 24, an abomination is he who chooses you. Choosing these false gods instead of the true and living God leads one down the path of nothingness and emptiness until one becomes an abomination oneself, just like they are. Skip down to verse 8 for a second. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. You see, the Lord God, he's the real deal. Except no substitutes. You can't find glory like God's glory anywhere else. Nobody else deserves your praises. Okay, so that's point one. Since these gods are unable to help, and they don't really have any announcement about the future to give, God then goes on and gives his own announcement. He has told us the former things, which I think might include 
Isaiah predicting the exile and then predicting the rise of Cyrus. And, you know, we've seen that already in some of these chapters uh, 40 and 41. But now, God says, new things I now declare at, uh, in, verse, uh, in verse 9 there. So what is his announcement? Well, point two, God announces his support for his chosen servant. 42.1, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Okay, so who is this servant? It's a question we keep running into in Isaiah. I, I mentioned it before. We, 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 oh, every time we see the servant, it's, it's a little tricky to figure out who he is. Um, sometimes the servant is Cyrus, this great pagan king. Um, but I, I think that we'll see when we get to the description of the servant in the next verse, he's actually not a lot like Cyrus. He's at least a little bit less loud. Sometimes the servant is the corporate people of Israel, as it was back in verse 8 of chapter 4. And actually, the Greek translation of this verse um, puts in the words Israel and Jacob. Um, however, and this description, it might be what Israel was supposed to be, but by the time we get to the end of the chapter, we'll see that Israel actually doesn't match up at all to what's being described here. On the other hand, this language about God choosing somebody and placing his spirit upon them actually sounds an awful lot like how God's chosen king is described from David onwards um, in our call to worship today. We heard God's king described as his chosen one. And then we also heard from Haggai 2, the description of Zerubbabel as God's chosen servant. Um, and Zerubbabel is from the line of David. Um, so this seems to be some kind of kingly figure. But even if Zerubbabel might be seen as a partial fulfillment of this, I don't think he really lives up to the lofty expectations in this chapter. No, the language of the servant here. It leaves Israel waiting, even at the end of the Old Testament, for someone who's really going to live up to what this passage has to say. It leaves them waiting for their Messiah. It's a passage that can only really be fulfilled once we get to Jesus. Before we get too far into who the servant is, though, I want us to notice the emphasis on the fact that the servant is supported by the Lord and by his Spirit. The servant is the one whom God has chosen. He is elected in God's plan long before he is born. The Lord says that he upholds him. He's the one in whom my soul delights. Or we could translate that, in whom I myself delight. The servant is precious and beloved by God. And that same language is reiterated in verse 6. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. The Lord calls the servant into his service. He leads him by the hand. One of Isaiah's favorite images, like a parent with a child. Um, and the Lord keeps him and protects him from all danger. And the ultimate expression of all of this is that the Lord puts his spirit upon the servant. It's an interesting contrast here. Previously, we said that the uh, idols and the gods they represent are empty wind. That was the image uh, Isaiah used. And of course, but of course, the word wind in Hebrew and spirit are the same word. 
The contrast here between the empty wind, the insubstantiality of the idols, and God's spirit, which is a very different kind of spirit, one that brings power and strength. It's the spirit of the Lord who gives life, overshadows and protects and empowers for service. In the Old Testament, God's spirit enables God's presence with his people, and it also comes in a special way on God's chosen leaders. And we're not to forget, who is this God who gives the spirit to the servant? He is the creator of everything. I think that's why verse 5 is here. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. The passage specifically focuses us on the fact that God as creator has given existence to everything that is, and very specifically that he gives breath and spirit to everything that walks about on the earth. Um, Let's stop and remind ourselves for a second. So in Hebrew, as well as in Greek, wind and spirit or breath are actually the same words. Um, Now in English, we have this word spirit. You know, I guess we think we're real fancy. We have a different word for it. Where do we get that from? Well, the Latin spiritus is just a Latin word for breath. (laughs) So we might think we're being real fancy, um, but it's not like we have a clear comprehension on what a spirit is more than anybody else. Uh, What I'm saying is that um, our spirits and the spirit of God are not literally breath or a wind, but because we have a hard time sometimes understanding something invisible, we're given a picture of it. And wind or breath is that picture of what a spirit is. And one of the reasons for that is that the Spirit is an invisible power. Now, Jesus talks about how you can't see the wind, but you can kind of see its effects. And that's similar. We can't see our own spirits or God's spirits. We can see some of the effects of them. Um, There's another reason, too, to associate, and that's that we associate our lives with our breath. Somebody dies, they stop breathing. And Scripture says that God's Spirit gives and takes away the life of every living thing. Psalm 104, verses 29 to 30. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. So the idea here is that we think of spirit like breath because the spirit is the one that gives life, symbolized by breath, to every living thing. You see, God doesn't just create the world, set it in motion like a spinning top, and then stand back and let it go. No, God is present with the world, preserving it in being every moment and time. No new creature is born or enabled to exist without the work of his spirit. And creatures die when his spirit, in some sense, withdraws his presence from them. Creation is at all times nurtured, by the presence of God's Spirit. Now, we need to be careful to maintain the distinctness between our spirits and God's spirits. Sometimes people can think that our spirits are like a little piece of God or something, and that's not correct. Um, The point is, rather, that God's Spirit is always close to us, preserving us in our very life and being. And we're dependent upon that creational presence simply to exist at all times. I think that's what Isaiah is reminding us of here bit of a long explanation for just verse 5, but I think it's important background to understand the massive significance of saying that God places his spirit upon the servant. 
Because if this is the Spirit that gives life and breath to all things, what is he capable of? Remember all that stuff in chapter 40 about uh, running and not getting weary and mounting up on wings like eagles? This is the Spirit that gives that kind of power. And though we're all dependent on the same Spirit for life and being, the servant has a special presence of the Spirit, a special power of God placed upon him. And this is what we see when we turn to the New Testament, isn't it? And do you hear any of the echoes of chapter 42, verse 1? It's echoed in the baptism of Jesus. Here's how Mark puts it. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. See, the point is clear. Jesus is the servant of Isaiah 42, isn't it? He is the one in whom the Father delights. And we see the Spirit come down visibly and rest upon him. And then in Luke, this language actually comes back at Jesus' transfiguration in the passage that Nate read for us earlier. Uh, On that mountain, when the disciples see Jesus' glory, they hear the voice of the Father proclaiming, this is my Son, my chosen one. There's the other term from Isaiah 42.1. Listen to him. And as we read through the whole Gospels, we see that Jesus' entire ministry is carried out in dependence upon the Holy Spirit's equipping. And actually, if you go read Matthew and Luke, you find out that Jesus was even conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit marks his life from conception onwards. Everything he does is empowered by God. He lives in active dependence upon the Holy Spirit with every step he takes. So how can we apply this to ourselves this morning? Well, one thing I hope that you take away when you walk out of here today is the way that the life and work of Christ, his work on our behalf, flows out of the love of the entire Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and invites us into that love. You know, Richard Sibbs, a 17th century English minister, wrote a book on our passage today called The Bruised Reed. In the interest of trying not to plagiarize, I'll make sure and cite my sources. Um, I don't think we have it in the library, but maybe we could get a copy. That would be a great thing. Um, I don't know where Michelle is, but maybe I'll talk to her later. <laughs> Just a suggestion. Um, I actually read it this week because I was working on my sermon, and it was wonderfully encouraging to me. Um, so um, I'd encourage it to all of you. Um, but he puts this point this way. What a support to our faith is this, that God the Father, the party offended by our sins, is so well pleased with the work of redemption. And what a comfort is this, that seeing God's love rests on Christ as well pleased in him, we may gather that he is as well pleased with us if we be in Christ. For his love rests in a whole Christ, in Christ mystical as well as Christ, as well as Christ natural. What Sibs is saying there is just as Christ himself has this love, so his body, the church, mystically Christ, also um, receives this love from the Father. Let us therefore embrace Christ and in him God's love and build our faith safely on such a Savior that is furnished with so high a commission. See here for our comfort a sweet arrangement of all three persons, 
The Father gives a commission to Christ. The Spirit furnishes and sanctifies to it. And Christ himself executes the office of a mediator. Our redemption is founded upon the joint agreement of all three persons of the Trinity. You know, sometimes I think we can have an unbiblically simplistic view of the gospel, where we only see God the Father as a stern or a harsh father who's angry for us at our sins and finds tenderness, and, and we find tenderness and love only in his son, Jesus, as if Jesus kind of had to twist the Father's arm in order to get him to love us. But the Bible teaches that the Father sent the Son because the Father loves us. And although God's wrath against sin is a reality, salvation comes because the Father is a loving Father. And the Father sends his Son so that we could share in the delight that the Father has over the Son. So that we could know what it's like for us to be called God's beloved children. So that we could receive God's Spirit set upon us as well. The Son comes into the world as the servant in order to show this to us. Though every minute of our existence depends on God's gift of life and breath, the world exists in a state of forgetfulness, turned away from its creator, as if we're purposely averting our gaze from the one who's giving us life at every single moment, and we give our worship to false gods instead. Jesus calls us back to our Creator. He calls us to see the love of God that we have become blind to. He calls us back into dependence upon God's Spirit. Okay, so that's the second point. God announces His support for His servant. But now let's come to the heart of the passage. Who is this servant? What what is he going to be like? And what is his mission? Well, the first thing we can say is that he is a servant. And that title can mean more or less. Cyrus, the pagan king, is God's servant, but I don't think it's obvious that this means that he has a a spirit of conscious submission to God. I think it just means that God uses him to accomplish his purposes. But the servant described here really does live up to the name in full. He lives in dependence and service towards God. That's something we'll hear more about as we continue to go through Isaiah. This passage also focuses us on the fact that he is a quiet and a gentle servant. Look at verses 2 to 3. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. So the servant doesn't cry out. He doesn't make a lot of noise. And I think this is a difference between Cyrus and the servant. I get the impression that Cyrus is pretty noisy, going around with massive armies and beating people up. But the servant is quiet. Uh, and although we've said this language is of God's chosen, is royal, kingly language, this isn't like many kings we know, um, or even most politicians. Uh, I think we're much more used to announcing kings, announcing themselves with pomp and circumstance, and making a lot of noise. Um, but this servant is not going to be like that. He's going to come in a quiet, humble way. And I think Matthew picks up on this. I didn't have this as one of the scripture readings. But Matthew quotes our passage in Matthew 12, 15. But before he quotes it, he says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then he goes and quotes the first four verses of chapter 42. Now, I think part of that is that Jesus heals people. We see the servant's concern for healing the weak in this passage. Well, there's plenty of healing passages in the Gospels. 
Matthew puts the quote right after Jesus tells people not to make him known. He not only heals them, but he tells them to be quiet about it. Um, And I think that's what Matthew is showing us. You see, um, Jesus, you know, I don't know if you ever noticed this strange pattern that he keeps telling people early on in the Gospels not to go tell people about him, not to make a lot of noise about it. It it almost seems like he's keeping his identity as the Messiah a secret. Why is that? Have you ever wondered about that? It seems kind of strange. Why, Why is Jesus doing that? Well, it seems like Jesus is intentionally avoiding fame and glory because the path his father has given him is one of humility and lowliness. At least I think that's part of the reason. So you see, Jesus is very unlike any king or politician you've ever heard of. Uh, He doesn't go around with a bunch of noisy bluster to aggrandize himself, but he focuses on the work his father has given him to do. So he's a quiet servant, but also he's a gentle servant. Verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So there's two images of human weakness here. One is a reed that's been broken or crushed in some way. We find this image in other Bible passages where we talk about a kind of reed that you wouldn't want to use as a walking stick because it would end up breaking and you get splinters in your hand. Uh, If you try to put your weight on it for support, it's not going to hold it. Um, It's also a word that means crushed and has this sense of oppression as well. It's part of the metaphor. But if it's still planted in the ground, there is some hope that it might heal. As my story at the beginning probably uh, revealed, I'm not much of a gardener myself. But I I did a little research into this, and I found a, a wonderful blog where somebody shared this gardening story of a blueberry bush that they had ra- you have to raise a blueberry bush for about three years to get fruit, apparently. And it was year three, but somebody stepped on it and snapped it. And they were distraught, but they took some tape and they taped it back together and it was actually able to heal. That's, that's the, the story here. We got a plant that's bruised, that's crushed, but if it's treated gently, it's going to be able to heal. We also have this image of a dim wick. It's burning low and faint, almost been snuffed out. But as readers from ages past will tell you, I had to learn this from Sibs because I don't use an oil lamp very often. If you have a wick that's sputtering low, sometimes you can trim it and bring it back to burning at full strength. So once again, rather than snuffing out this wick, uh, the servant is able to minister to it and bring it back to full strength. And the servant ministers to the weak out of his own inner strength. Um, Actually, if we look at the next verse, we're told that he won't grow faint or be discouraged. And this doesn't really come through in the English. That's actually, those those are the same verbs. Like the verb for being crushed, the servant won't be crushed. The verb for being dim or fading away, the servant won't fade away. Uh, In other words, the servant has this inner strength from which he's able to minister to other people. Not one I don't think that comes from his own strength, but we're supposed to remember what we've already learned about God giving strength. The servant is drawing these resources from the Spirit, and from that he's able to minister to the weak. He has a power of perseverance that comes from dependence upon God's Spirit. So what is the servant's mission? If this is who the servant is, what is the servant's mission? Well, it is to bring justice. That idea, justice, is repeated multiple times, right? 
Verse 1, he will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. We have this image of justice breaking forth like the sun on a dark world. And that's what's going to happen with the servant. He's the one who's going to bring out justice. And it's not even just going to be for Israel. It's going to be for the nations, for the coastlands. You know, sometimes people ask me, where is America in the Bible? And there's multiple answers you could give to that, not in there directly. Um, but one answer would be, it's one of the coastlands. It's, one of, it's, it's this wonderful verb that the uh, um, Israelites and the Egyptians would kind of use for all of those sort of islandy things out there. We're not really sure how much, but if you keep going, we know there's some stuff out there. <laughs> so it's, it includes us. We're here talking about the serpent today. So, the servant is going to bring forth justice across the entire world. And then verses 6 to 7 make the same point, don't they? I am the Lord. I have called you, singular by the way, I have called you, singular, the servant he's, God's talking to here, in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. The Lord has called the servants in righteousness as an expression of God's own righteousness. The servant himself will be a covenant for the people. He's going to be one who brings them into covenant relation with God. He'll be a light to the nations who are currently living in the darkness of injustice. Living under injustice is compared to being blind and not being able to see, or like being confined in a dark prison. Spirit comes to liberate them from this. And this is a way in which the Spirit is actually rather different, again, from Cyrus. Because there's a sense in which Cyrus brings justice of a sort, or at least judgment. It's clear that God is bringing Cyrus' judgment on the nations. He said that. But Cyrus brings judgment, he brings justice through violence. Jesus is different. He brings forth justice to the nations, but in a way that doesn't crush the weak. And don't we just see that uh, gentleness throughout Jesus' ministry? Um, he is bringing forth justice. He is teaching people to wait for his law, for sure. But Jesus is so gentle with sinners as he does it. Think of Thomas when he doubts and how gentle Jesus is with him. Think about when he's restoring Peter after Peter has fallen. About the Emmaus disciples when they were discouraged or the woman caught in adultery. The way that Jesus brings forth justice is, is different than an earthly kingdom is able to bring forth justice. And it's a charge that's given to us as his followers as well. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Now, it's not to say that we shouldn't ever admonish anybody. Jesus certainly admonished the Pharisees. And we taught here about admonishing the idle in 1 Thessalonians. When it comes to the weak, people who are spiritually weak, we're told to help them. And we're told to be patient with them all. You know, as I was thinking about this passage this week, I thought about some of the competing visions of justice in our society right now, and even in the church, and some of the debates going on, and I'm not going to wade into them right now. But one thing that occurred to me is, you know, there's a real shortage of bringing forth justice 
without crushing the weak around. Um, and, you know, I know some of you may be very geared up for what they call the culture wars. Like I said, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to tell you that we don't need to fight for the truth, by the way, or that iron doesn't have to sharpen iron sometimes. But brothers and sisters, we must not just fight for the justice of God's law, we must do it in a way that doesn't crush the weak. And, you know, there's a generational difference here. And in some of the relationships in my life, I've noticed um, people from a younger generation feeling like people from an older generation are dismissive of their concerns about justice and talk about it in a way that crushes them. But I've also heard people from an older generation talk about people from a younger generation be dismissive of their concerns about justice and talk about it in a way that crushes them. Let's remember, and like I said, I think we do need to have iron sharpens iron discussions about what is biblical justice. Let's remember this call to be gentle with each other when we do it. Let's remember this call not to crush the weak. Um, it's, it's really challenging. I, I, I feel the temptation in my own heart, even as, as I'm exhorting you to do this, when I think that I've got the truth, when I think that I've got it right, the tendency to just bulldoze somebody who is wrong, at least according to the light as I can see it. And I think we need to be very cautious about what Satan may be doing in the church, what his plans may be. I, I think that he's devious, and there's nothing he loves to do more than use the truth and our disagreements about what the truth is to lead us into sin, to lead us into attacking and crushing each other. Let's be watchful. Let's be careful about that. Finally, I think we'd be missing the whole point of this passage if we didn't see that it points us to the servant, to Jesus after all. I mean, we may be very imperfect in the ways that we seek to bring forth justice, and we often are. But Jesus is the one that actually knows how to do this very difficult thing, how to bring forth justice and concern for God's law, but in a way that doesn't crush the weak. He's the one who knows how to, uh, um, how to uh, heal the divisions in the world and the divisions even in the church. And as I look at some of the divisions around us today about what justice even is, um, and I look as, as I look at the mounting harshness that that conflict often takes, it's something I'm really grateful for. Um, because I don't think I know how to do what Jesus does a lot of the time, but I know that Jesus does and that he's leading us by his spirit. It's good news that we have a savior who won't crush us when we're weak, isn't it? And maybe you really need to hear this passage this morning. You, you hear about that bruised, crushed reed or that dim, sputtering wick, and you think, that's me. I feel like I'm a reed that's been trampled down almost to breaking point. I feel like my light is about to go out. I don't feel the joy of the Lord. I don't feel strong. I feel empty. I feel broken in my sin. And sometimes there's nothing more frightening than hearing about God's justice because I might feel like God's just going to show up and finish the job, to finish me. Friend, this God has somebody he wants you to meet. His servant. His name is Jesus. He's gentle with us in our weakness. Just as he was gentle with that woman caught in adultery. 
Just as he was gentle with Peter after he fell, he will not crush the weak. He won't leave you in your sin either. He won't rest until he brings forth the justice of God's law. But he knows how to do this without crushing us. Jesus is a healer. As the passages that quote in the New Testament that quote this love to show, he heals the blind, he heals the sick. He's the good gardener who knows how to bring the bruised reed back to full health, how to trim the wick so that it burns strong. And this is good news for you, even if you've been a Christian a long time, because you know the weakness that still remains. And if you're here and you're somebody who wouldn't call yourself a Christian, if you're wrestling with the truth of Christ's message, maybe you're wrestling with the Bible's ethical demands, with the law of God. Know that this gospel is not a message that crushes the weak. There is forgiveness for sins. We have a Savior who comes near us and heals us. You know, I think this is a point, the reason I chose Luke 9 rather than Matthew 12 as our New Testament reading is I think it brings out this point so well. We can turn back to it a second with the transfiguration. You know, we have this glorious moment when Jesus takes his disciples up on the mountain and they see him in his glory. Something that's concealed from them most of his earthly ministry. I think this is why Jesus is the way he is, why he's not loud. He comes humble and lowly, like a servant. And now these disciples who've been with him for so long, they, they suddenly they get to see the whole deal. <laughs> they get to see his glory as the Son of God, and they're just bowled over by it. And, you know, what's, what's Peter's suggestion? A real reasonable one. Let's, let's make three tents and camp out here. Who, who doesn't want to see God's glory? He wants to bask in it. But, you know, we shouldn't read this passage without realizing what comes before it and what comes after it. Because this passage is placed right in the middle of this moment in Jesus' ministry when he's starting to share with his disciples where this is all headed. He's starting to walk this path towards Jerusalem, towards death on the cross. And so they do come down from the mountain. They don't follow Peter's plan. They follow the Father's plan, the one he's given Jesus. Jesus is the chosen one. And so he comes down, and immediately we see Jesus heal somebody. Again, I think Luke um, sees the resonance with Isaiah here, that, that immediately Jesus is confronted with someone who's weak, who's being dominated by this demon, who's, 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 who's in prison, who's imprisoned in darkness, and Jesus releases them and frees them. And then... He starts to tell the disciples, and he tells it to sink into their ears. Remember, God the Father just told them, listen to Jesus. And now Jesus is, really listen to this, but they're going to have a really hard time getting it. Which is, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. That's the calling. It's Jesus coming gentle and humble and lowly, Although he is the Son of God with such great glory, he submits himself. He perseveres in his mission even to the point of death on the cross. Christian, behold God's servant. Do you see what it costs Jesus not to crush weak sinners? He had to persevere in being crushed. He had to be a weak and lowly king 
who triumphed through dying, paying the penalty for our sin. And so Jesus knows our weaknesses, and he deals with us in love. He is patient in our weaknesses and heals us. You know, near the end of Stibb's book, but it really is a very good book, he has a dialogue when Satan tries to convince us that God's done with us. And it goes like this. Satan will object, you are a great sinner. We may answer, Christ is a strong Savior. But he will object, you have no faith, no love. Yes, a spark of faith and love. But Christ will not regard that. Yes, he will not quench the smoking flax. But this is so little and weak that it will vanish and come to naught. Nay, but Christ will cherish it until he has brought judgment to victory. Brothers and sisters, that's where our hope is today. That Christ, even though we be weak, a bruised reed and a smoldering wick, Christ will bring forth God's justice in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son in the form of a servant, obedient even to the point of death, that he might save us. So that whether we are strong or whether we are weak, we are dependent on your strength. We thank you for Christ's patience and gentleness and perseverance with us, and we pray that he would continue to be active in our lives by his Spirit, teaching us justice, helping us to have a meek and gentle spirit like his. And we pray that you would be with each one of us, helping us to trust in the Savior you have given us and to believe he has saved us and that he will not abandon us to our sin. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.